Welcome to Paint Ed. PCA provides painting contractors with connections they need to grow their business. To find out more and to become a member, visit PCAPainted.org. Find more great content like this on PCA Overdrive. A subscription to the platform is included with membership. For all of you non-members out there, sign up for a free trial. PCA Overdrive is available on the App Store and Google Play. This episode is brought to you by 3M, PPG, and Breakthrough Academy. Welcome to the Women of Paint podcast. I'm your host, Michael Cheney. I am also the owner of No Drip Painting, where we are changing lives through paint. And I've got a treat for us today because I've got one of the well-known women in the painting industry, Gina Coer, on with me. She is the president of SPI, and I got the pleasure of hearing her speak at the recent Women in Paint event. Gina, thank you so much for joining me today. Thanks for having me. You got it. Um, So I kind of, you know, led into this with saying you're one of the well-known women in the paint industry. Is that a title that you think of when you think of you being in this industry and being in this industry for all these years? Is that something you're aware of? Um, Sometimes I am, sometimes I'm not. I, I mean, I'd love to think that I'm the trailblazer because back when I would attend these events, there were very few women at the tables, on the board. Um, there was no women in paint podcasts, events. Um, and so you really had to learn to earn your seat at the table, right? Um, so to see the event that we were at a couple of weeks ago where it's a room full of women business owners and painters and things like that was really a unique and wonderful experience. Yeah, totally. Um, the cool thing is that you presented at the Women in Paint event and at the same time there was the commercial event going on. And I believe you presented at that event as well, right? Um, yeah, I was moderating, had some discussion with things in both of them. I kind of bounced back and forth. I sure did. Now, do you? was there like a different feeling in the room opposed to a room full of women and a room full of probably mostly men? To you, can you feel a difference? I did. You did. Not in a negative way. Um, sure. it, it's just the, I guess if I have to think about a word I would use, it was not even, you know, positivity versus negativity. It was more of an open space, like a community mm-hmm. feel that you could sit at the table. And um, I, we said it, you know, during my talk is that vulnerability is people were there to share and learn. And there was a sense of community. And there definitely was a sense of community in both spaces. Um, but when you have a room full of women, um, I think that there's a lot of guards that are down, people more open to share. Um, just, yeah, it was a really neat space. Yeah, I think that's a great way to to frame that. Um, you just kind of touched on vulnerability, and I know that's kind of a buzzword these days. In your presentation, you talked about leading with vulnerability. What place does vulnerability have for you in leadership? That's kind of my first question. And then the other, um, I think, awareness that I'd like to bring to the conversation is that I think people in general still kind of struggle with, is vulnerability a strength? or is it a weakness? So as you're kind of talking about where vulnerability plays in leadership, uh, maybe you can also kind of touch on how you view vulnerability altogether. Right. 
I think one of the things that I did share is if you can be vulnerable in a business setting, it creates authenticity. And authenticity is where everything else can follow. So there's it, it creates that space for people who work with you as your coworkers who work, you know, below you. Um, it, it creates a culture, a comfortability of whether it's, you know, approach, they feel included, they could come share their ideas. Um, and that takes, I think that takes a while. I certainly didn't lead with vulnerability for years because you build walls thinking you've got to show up and match the people across the table. And most of the time they are male counterparts. So to show a vulnerability, you immediately associate it with weakness. Um, I know some people when I was discussing with um, some of the people that were in the audience, they said, you know, I don't want to be able to have to share. It's, it's, it feels weak when I have to tell somebody I have to leave early from a meeting because I have to go pick up my children or I have to help get my daughter to soccer practice or I have, you know, something that you have to do. I just got a phone call from the school. My child's sick and I have to go get them. Instead of feeling supported, you sometimes immediately feel like that's a weakness. Um, when you are vulnerable about that and you say, yeah, you know, my family is just import important as my you know, professional life, there's respect in that. There's authenticity in that. And most of the time, nine times out of 10, um, there's always that outlier. People are going to respect that. Mm -hmm. um, and so when you start leading with that kind of in mind, um, that's where the real magic happens versus, you know, your own head trash or your own self-doubt, um, that guilt. For many years, I had guilt. Uh -huh. um, we're a dual working family. So both of us work that if I had to leave a meeting because again, my daughter was sick or I had to take my son somewhere, um, you almost feel this sense of shame that like, oh, I have other responsibilities and have to do this, especially when you're a leader. Right. Do you, do you think, well, I guess I could just ask you this, you know, when you're feeling, you know, these guilty feelings about, about that, would you say that your husband would he feel the same or do you think that's more indicative to how women or mothers kind of uh, handle their, their role? I think it's definitely self-imposed more by women and mothers. Okay. Um, yeah. Not to say that some fathers don't. I know that we've been in situations where I'm traveling for events and my husband might have work meetings and get those same phone calls. And he probably feels a sense of I've got to skip out. My, my wife is traveling. Um, but certainly probably not the norm. Yeah. Now, uh, there's a thread of this that that leads me to talk about self-worth because you touched on it and about knowing your worth. Um, you know, over the years, how have you learned to be more connected with your worth and how have you learned to be able to champion that and and apply it to this this industry that we love? Uh, what would you have to say about self-worth? and your lessons in that realm. Sure. I really started gaining my own, my personal self-worth when I realized that I had just as many answers. I knew just as many products or systems. I could show up at the table and give anybody a, a run for their money. And it was having confidence in that. Um, mm -hmm. And it's really letting go of self-doubt and guilt. Yeah. I don't know. It's not a one size fits all because I don't know where it comes from everybody. I know personally where it, it came from me. I grew up in the commercial painting industry. So I worked heavily with architects, general contractors, and just not seeing a landscape of a lot of female counterparts 
you inevitably go, am I in the wrong place? Do mm. I belong here? Do yeah. I have something to say that they're going to listen to? Because there are many times, you know, over 20 years ago when I would sit, they thought I was there to take notes, um, yeah. you know, for, and so they didn't realize I was the estimator or the project manager. And I knew more than my counterparts with, you know, my superintendent to my right. Um, sometimes it would be my father to my left. Um, and they'd almost talk through you like you were an invisible. I mean, that's, there were really, I can think back to meetings where I would come back very defeated from a buyout meeting mm -hmm. or um, really upset that I wasn't as received um, as I should have been in terms of just looking me in the face, asking the questions to me direct instead of to my team or my counterparts. And so over the years, that's changed. I sit down, they give you, you know, a ton of respect. I think that there is such a, a, a big change in the landscape in terms of female project managers, female um, enge uh, engineers, uh, female superintendents, business owners. And so to see that change over the last couple of decades, um, it's not in their face, but there has to be a kind of a, a fluid acceptance of this and treating you know your counterparts the same that obviously they have just as much to say, they understand the same. Um, and it seems real basic, right? But it's still real when you're in a very male centric environment. Um, it's very real, maybe not intentional, but it's very real about the way that you're received. And so, yeah. And you also don't want to be to the other side of it. I never wanted to be the loudest voice in the room either. Right. Mm. Because the loudest voice doesn't always get received well either. Like, Oh gosh, right. she's just, you know, being bitchy or she's this. And I've even made those same assumptions when I've dealt with other women on the other side and it's a room full of women it can sometimes get super heated because you can see they might be new to the industry or they're trying to make a name for themselves with their male counterparts mm -hmm. and they do that by instead of being supportive or vulnerable with you as their you know basically trade partner they want to you know show their counterparts that like they can make you you know eat this change order or they're ah. going to you know, stack the schedule or um, and so sometimes you have to deal with that too. You, you never know, you know, what the landscape or what they're going through or what the yeah. pressure that they're under. Uh, well, I have to say, and I, I'm saying this, I think on behalf of the, the folks that, that listen to this podcast, is that on some level, it's kind of refreshing to hear that you have also been through all of this, right? <laughs> Um, and, and you've overcome it, you, you know, you've figured out how to navigate this industry. Um, what advice would you give to someone who's just starting and maybe they're feeling like they actually don't have the confidence because they're still learning, whether it's the products, the, you know, the pricing or, or what have you, um, before you've got all the information, how can you still show up? Um, kind of claim your space, but maybe do it in a way that uh, demands respect. What, what what kind of input can you give us on that? Yeah, I've I've gotten asked this quite a bit. The two things that I think when I think back made the biggest difference for me was a mentor and a deep industry knowledge and just taking the time to ask questions and study. Um, for me, it was learning specifications, the spec books. And from there, I got really good with learning product systems, what substrates got what systems, um, high performance code systems, um, different bottle, you know, the VOCs of different things. Um, and then I had a mentor who would talk me through how we put, we set up a proposal, questions you might be asked. And so when I was done doing a takeoff or going out to a project buyout meeting or something, I either had somebody there to say, what could I have done better? 
how did it go? What did I mess up? And get that, I think, what was really critical feedback at the time to either grow or be better um, and not just think that I had it all figured out. Um, yeah, that, that makes a lot of sense. Right. And just having having grace with yourself, because whether you're a woman or a man, we're all going to make errors. You know, we're human. Nothing's going to be perfect. Uh, there's a big joke and has been for many years in my office. When I did a, a 14 story project uh, back in probably 2008, um, I had taken off all of the stairs, the core, and they were 14 floors of steel. Um and one person was doing all of the corn shell. I was doing all the tenant interiors and he took up the stairs. I took up the stairs and neither one of us priced it. Right. So we were obviously competitive bid and we did get the project. Right. And it did right. actually end up well, but it was an error. You know, it was a mistake. Yeah. It was a joke of don't let Gina take off the stairs. She might not price them. Um, but I mean, it's just having grace with yourself, knowing that we're all going to and you learn through that. And, and even that was a lesson, you know, having to then partner with my vendor at the time and then championing like, yeah, we got you and working on pricing on the product and things to lessen the blow of something like that. Um, and that was a yeah. whole nother layer of getting that experience. You know what? That actually leads me right into my next topic. So way to go for uh, teeing me up for this one. So you talked a lot about collaboration. Uh, in this instance, I'm bringing it up because, you know, uh, you didn't price out stairs. You go to your vendors and say, hey, here's what happened. Can you help me? Right. Uh, and really leaning on those partnerships that you've formed. Um, but what about uh, collaboration in terms of your culture? You know, you talked about uh, team building, protecting your culture. Those things uh, really stuck with me. Uh, so let's talk about kind of how collaboration funnels into your culture and team building. Uh, and I know that all of that is really important to you. So uh, let's, let's maybe talk about that and your culture and how, how you right. that up. Yeah. Culture, company culture has become more of a, a kind of a buzz hot topic. I feel like in the last few years, I don't remember, certainly not when my father had the company or, or even 20 years ago that team building and culture was this big thing that you had to preserve, right? It was people came to yeah. work, they did their job. They were really good independently. I think what happens when you have a company or a business like that, and it does tend to get trickier when you have larger companies or more of a, you know, a corporate setting um, is it creates silos. Right. So mm -hmm. whether it's the office versus the field and, and I've seen even our own company where the field doesn't think the office, you know, fully has their vantage point, what they do. The office doesn't realize everything that goes into it before it gets to the field. And so, you know, human are species that they like to form cultures. And so you, you have to be very intentional with the culture that you want um, because it's a powerful influence on behaviors in your business. And we all spend so much time in our business. And so, you know, we started out with, you know, what are our, our company values? And some people, mm -hmm. they just, it, it's basically their values become the top part of a page or, you know, we have them on our wall. So we walk by them every day and we see them. Um, it's, it's kind of like some people's, you know, mission statements, like how often do they really revisit those and stay true yeah. to those um, to form like this person does or doesn't fit within this company culture. And you've had to have a lot of those decisions. I think when you really talk about preserving a company culture, like how committed are you to that? We've had people in the past that were really great, reliable workers, did their job really well, showed up, and they just didn't fit personality wise in the culture. Mm -hmm. They were very negative, but they were good at their job. And eventually that either creates animosity or, or a cancer in your culture. And I know lots of people are familiar with this concept, but if you're not 
strong enough or leading to say this isn't going to really work and preserve your culture, it will create issues, I think, later on where it might upset. You know, I've personally seen it and I've learned from experience where you allow one person to stay that doesn't fit or has an attitude and it creates a lot of havoc with everybody else. So I think those that's the fundamental basics, right? Be clear about the value system, what your cultures are, um, because it's your culture also becomes your vision overall. And if you have everybody charging in the same direction, that's a really powerful thing. Absolutely. What, um, you know, I, we've gotten this question on the Facebook group and it's certainly something that has surfaced with me in the last couple of years. When you have to let someone go, is that, are you like, have you gained certain skills that have made that easier for you now? Or is it a difficult task? Like what kind of, you know, frame of mind do you have when you have to do something like that? Yeah. Um, it never gets easier. First of all, I mean, because the human experience, um, the empathetic side, right. That was another kind of thing we discussed, uh, at women in paint, Mm -hmm. the empathetic side, whether, I don't know if that is a more fluid female trait or not, but so it never gets easier, but I found if you can give the person you're letting go really good, kind of constructive feedback of why it does or doesn't work where they they leave there feeling some sense of closure versus I don't agree with this and I don't understand. And then many times they don't always agree, right? It's a self-preservation defense mode. Um, but if you feel like you can give them and you don't drag it out, like, you know, here's the decision why, here's not the good fit or whatever, at least there's some sort of closure and they they don't feel like this really kind of retaliation type, like I don't understand or I'm not clear. Um, And I think that that element is the difference between a leadership quality and a management quality, right? Because you can have good managers that will just fire somebody and be like, I'm done with it, right? They're not here anymore and and cut it off real quickly. But a leader is definitely going to discover the right questions, give some feedback and wish them luck on the next endeavor. It's just not a good fit here. That is a great way to distinguish the two. You know, the other thing that I found, I guess this would fall in the leadership category, is that if you also take the outlook that you don't want to keep them from their next opportunity, right? Uh, By keeping them in a space that isn't probably allowing them to thrive either because they don't fit with the culture or the values, by keeping them, you are also preventing them from maybe finding the job that they absolutely love the job that they're supposed to have. And, and I think that that's, um, you know, another thing that I've kind of been able to, to, to intertwine into those difficult moments is that really, I do want what's best for, for you. And, and this really isn't it. Right. Funny enough, I actually have a recent story. I don't even know if I would have one before now, but we had um, an estimator and a project manager last year that came from the general contracting side, had been in it for years, bounced around with GCs um, doing pre-construction and bidding. And we hired him to come over and estimate and project manage. And he, his approach was just very kind of loose, aloof. I don't know if I would go as far as to say lackadaisical, but he, he very, he failed in really digging into the details. Everything was the 5,000 foot view. And mm-hmm. when you're building out some of these proposals or bids for contractors and owners, you really have to get into the details. And so there was definitely a couple of elements that we were concerned because painting and finishing coming at the end, you have sometimes the most details, you know, yeah. from different colors to wall covering to the wall prep. Um, and so that was one of the areas um, that he, it was not a strength. 
and we ended up um, parting ways with him. And it was, I mean, it definitely wasn't an easy decision, Uh but to your point, his love, he would always come in and he loved growing hand gardens. He did salsa. He was always, he was a home brewer. He was always bringing stuff to the office to share. And everybody was like, wow, this is amazing. Well, after he ended up leaving, when we let him go, instead of him continuing to charge on the path of, you know, painting or staying in construction for all these years, he decided him and his wife to go buy a brewery. Wow. And he is now the head brewmaster and less his job doing everything that he, you know, it only took him 20 years to figure that out or really get forced into, you know what, I'm going to look at something different. I've been doing this for two decades. It hasn't served me well. I've kind of just been maintaining, right? It's not, I'm I'm not passionate about it. I'm probably okay with it. You know, I'm not excellent. Um, And so it was neat because probably a couple weeks ago, one of his coworkers was like, you'll never believe, you know, what he's doing. Him and his wife went and opened a brewery and he's the head brewer um, and loves it. Absolutely loves it. So, you know, to your point, had we not said, you know, this probably might not be a good fit. He may never have gone down that path to figure out this is what I'm really good at what I enjoy and I'm going to give it, you know, my all. So, yeah, that's, that's, that's a great story. Um, you also do really cool things for your team. Uh, I think you even do a Mexico trip, things like that. Um, and how does that go with the team? I mean, I, I have to imagine on some level, you've got folks that have been with you for years. Um, talk about that and kind of some of those cool things you do. I know you do paintball, you celebrate birthdays and all the things. We do. Um, you know, we started doing these things probably three, four years ago, fairly new. But I realized that, you know, and, and we talked about it a lot that I, I would ask people in the industry, what do you do for your team? You know, is it just going out and doing a team building event for a couple hours? Do you? And it was across the board. I know that, you know, Nick Slavic takes a whole bunch of people and does a leadership and he goes up to the woods in I think Minnesota and rents a house for a weekend. And um, other people do different kind of trips. Some people just take their key employees or team kind of leadership to some of these events, the conferences, mm-hmm. right? And they take them to these things to interact. And, and that's how they show their their level of you know, team building or gratitude mm-hmm. is to get them exposure. Um, and, and then some people just do like the go-karting or things like that. So I thought it would be neat to try a hybrid to see like what resonated more with everybody. So when we do when we do type of team building where we are leaving, whether it's Mexico or going up to the mountains to ski or go for hikes, um, the one rule that I have is there's no spouses involved because it changes the dynamic. Uh, It does create silos. People will go off and do their own thing. And so, and I've had a little bit of pushback, but people understand um, it's really just a Saturday and Sunday gig. So it's not like we're pulling them for a whole week, but it's, it's been really nice because it pulls everybody out of the office environment. And it's amazing how it changes their mindset about their approach with that colleague or people Mm -hmm. who are primarily in the field and people who are primarily in the office, they get to blend more on a regular basis outside of just going to a team meeting or a buyout or something work related. Um, And so, you know, we've done events like we've done zip lining, we did catamaran trips, you know, we'll all go, we've done golfing when we were in Mexico. Um, and it's really neat to see how per- people's personalities come out and they have more in common with each other than they realized they did, that they yeah. might have worked with each other for years and never knew that, oh, you play golf too, or um, right. just, you know, some quirky things. When everybody's sitting out around the pool and it's a very casual environment, they're yeah. forced to 
socialize and talk more about themselves. And what it does is it brings out that vulnerability. Mm. So when you have a group of seven guys, you know, sitting around with a couple of ladies, now everybody's will talk a little bit more about their hobbies or their family more so because they're in a different environment. And so at the end of it though, there is structure. We do a little bit of strategy planning. We have a dinner, um, usually one of the nights and we sit down and we all go through what worked really well for us this past year. Uh, where did we fail? Where do we need to do better? And so we go through and everybody kind of gives their, their pros and cons. And then we as a team go, okay, how are we going to change that in Q1 of mm -hmm. the next year? So it's, very rudimentary, but it's meant yeah. to just connect and create that space for them to be authentic, for them to feel comfortable. Um, yeah. And it does that. And I don't think when you go and you're doing paintball or go-kart racing, you create that space. So right. that's kind of the difference. Mm -hmm. That's yeah, no, that's, that's a excellent point. And it, I mean, one, it sounds like amazing time in Mexico playing golf. Um, but I think you're onto something there. You're right. You kind of can let your guards your guard down and maybe tap into that vulnerability. Um, what does inclusivity look like in your business? What, um, you know, being inclusive, including people, uh, that's a topic that you've touched on before. What does that mean to you for your business? Um, the inclusivity is basically like it's creating and building our network where everyone feels a part of it. Mm -hmm. um, feels like they are equal in the playing field and team, whether it's a female painter, a male painter, whether they are from a different country. I talked about a little bit how we've employed and continue to employ refugees that otherwise don't feel like they have many opportunities, but they know construction or they know paint. It's something in their home countries they knew. Um, and so we really do try to make it a comfortable space you know, does it always work? No. Are there language barriers sometimes? Absolutely. Um, it's not this perfect kind of thing, but I know that we're mindful of it. It's trying to make people feel comfortable. One of the things we did during some of our safety meetings with, we have a, a safety manager and he will go over certain topics that OSHA requires. And it was all in English. Um, and so they would sit there and they weren't participating as much um, and so I told him, I said, even if we don't have a fluent bilingual person that can answer questions, which most of the time we do, one of the requests I made to make them feel included and comfortable with the safety topics was we had him go back and add everything with Spanish subtitles below to where if the video was in English, they could read it and go, okay, yeah, I understand. And those right. are things that we used to never do. We used to say, you know, some people really take the attitude that if you know, English is the dominant language in our country. Like you just need to do it. Mm -hmm. We shouldn't have to change some of our safety and things to uh, accommodate you. Right. And some, I, I would like to think that most businesses make these concessions. I think some mm -hmm. either don't have the bandwidth or just maybe don't think about it, or maybe only have a couple people that it affects. And so they focus on the majority, you know, again, it, it looks different for every person's company. But in ours, we started to see, and it was a it was a very positive response because it was inclusive. They knew that we had done it yeah. so that they were, and, and I always put it in you know my perspective of if I'm down in Mexico and I'm sitting in this class and they put English subtitles on, how am I gonna feel? I'm gonna understand yeah. it versus sitting there navigating, struggling through everything, saying, Do I really understand what exactly. the topic is? Yeah, you and I really align on that. Uh, in my business, we do English classes for our team and their families. Um, but it is, it's a part of, you know, for me, uh, it, it creates connection, right? Yes. Um, 
big time. Uh, and plus the goal is to help people um, thrive and be successful. And we know in this country, it, it requires, uh, like my take is, you know, to be mo more successful in this country, you probably do need to learn some English. Now, the fact that you don't know it, to me, I love because I think diversity and being exposed to different cultures is a strength, right? But can we help you be successful? And one way that we've identified being able to do that is to help folks learn learn English. So I love what you're doing, yeah. super inspiring. And and uh, uh, yeah, do you have anything else to say on that topic? We actually reverse engineered that. And I sat with some of the managers and I said, if we get a Spanish tutor once or twice a week for an hour, will you guys all sit through it and us learn Spanish? And every single one of them said, absolutely. Absolutely. That's right. Yeah. I, uh, I actually have a Spanish tutor personally, still, still. How did it go? Well, it's awesome. So in the, in the new year, I'll be meeting with her twice a week via Zoom. Um, the 2024 is my year that I've dedicated to really learn Spanish. I spent a lot of time in Mexico and, and my Spanish is okay. But what I see really, I touched on it. It really is about connection, right? Um, it's, you know, I want to be able to have the conversations. I want to be able to check in with people. I want to be able to say, Hey, do you have an idea of how to do this better? Now on my team, I have a handful of bilingual folks, uh, that help bridge that gap. But for me is the business owner. I have just realized and, and believe that we can be much more successful if I improve my Spanish. I think it it sets um, a great example for my team. Uh, it shows people that that I care about who is on my team. So that's kind of been my passion project that I'm tackling in the new year. I want to switch gears here just a little bit because we don't have much time left. I want to talk about you <laughs> and I want to know what are, what's your hope for this business? Like, for, for you personally, what do you hope this business uh, turns into, you know, when, when you think about SPI? Um, honestly, it's, I'm like starting to live my dream. Um, my father started the business over 30 years ago. He was a union painter. I know a lot of people have heard this story and he built a lifestyle business and he did it almost um, he did it almost as a way of like, uh, it was survival, right? He worked for another company, they went under and he was like, oh my gosh, what am I going to do? And so his entry into it or starting a business looked very different than why most people say, I'm going to do this. I want to be my own boss. I get, I want to be an entrepreneur. Painting has a, a fairly low barrier of entry. I know I've heard a ton of people got into it because it was their first college job. Mm -hmm. And for my dad, it was survival. And so he built a lifestyle business once he realized a certain point and he didn't look at what can I do for other people or what can I build? Um, and at the time he's built a very great foundation for me to take it to the next level. And it took me many years to realize like, okay, this is what I want to do. Cause for the longest time I fought it. If I'm being hundred percent honest, like I never envisioned myself working in the family business. It was the first to graduate college in my family and I wanted to go off and do big things on my own. Um, so to come back to the family business, I needed to find my place and my goals and my value system and what I wanted. So I didn't feel like I was carrying on the family legacy of a lifestyle business because that that just wasn't my goals. And so um, we I worked with the company for many years um, just as an estimator project manager, and I really grew myself in the business. Nothing was handed to me. 
Um, I had to buy my shares in the company. Nothing was just given. I had to learn all the different roles in the company from estimating project management. I had to learn how to drive lifts and boom lifts. I had to learn how to do accounting. Um, and so as I started taking more of just an ownership pride um, and make it my own, I sat down and put together a strategy of where do I want this to be? And so we started doing different genres and streams of work. We went after multifamilies. We defined what projects we wanted to do, like Amazons and tilt-ups versus, mm -hmm. you know, restaurants and, you know, schools, maybe. Um, we looked at what we were good at from a niche kind of perspective and what we could build on and where we either needed to just table it for a while or we were not good on it and it was for somebody else. And so over the years, it never happens as fast as you want it, right? Over the years, we got really good at it and, and built it. Um, and my theory was that, you know, if I could build something great, then people would want to be on this team. It wasn't just a job they were showing up for mm -hmm. supporting my lifestyle. It was kind of a revenue stream and a way for them to build their future, their career yeah. and do something. And so I've always said that if I dream big enough, then everybody else's dreams will fit in mine. Um, and I really believe that because there's a lot of times you get in these small businesses and the only beneficiary of some of the hard work is really the owner or the leadership tiers, right? Um, it's not some of the people that are really making it happen that in this business without people, you know, in a few pumps, um, you don't have a lot. So you really have to invest in your people and, and you want them to feel like they're a part of something, even though they might not be the owner. Right. Um, right. And that's, that's the trick, right? The, when you're a leader, um, you, you basically define what the future looks like, right? You're the visionary. But when you're a manager or project manager, you set the processes, your processes, the functions, things like that. And there's a big difference. And sometimes when everybody's working in the business, not on the business and all those favorite things, you wear multiple hats, which is really part of the process. Everybody's been through it. Mm -hmm. um, you have to, as you grow and get bigger, define this is what I'm good at and this is my visionary silo. And I have these other people who set the processes and charge the way and that you don't get in their way either. And so I have, in my heart and head, I feel like I've successfully done a good job building that. Now there's always gonna be relapses where you've gotta go and redefine a new you know, process or this program no longer serves you know, for the size you are. We've gotta redefine this. So it's always a work in progress, right? Yeah. But I've really gotten to where I am um, recently, um, my dad sold his shares uh, at the end of last year to me where I was 100% controlling owner of the company after 30 some years. Um, and I have merged recently with a European company for my dad's shares um, because I ultimately, my goal was, was I wanted a non-family member partner. Mm. Um, I don't have siblings. Uh, my spouse is not in the business. And there were many times I kept coming back to time and time again some of my biggest stresses was I felt that I had the weight of the world on my shoulders. Um, and so I, I, and I take it very seriously. I know how many people's livelihood I'm responsible for, but it was really hard when at work, you're responsible for all these people. You come home, you're responsible for your family, you know, being a wife, mother, um, all of those obligations were overwhelming to me. I mean, a hundred percent overwhelming. I can think of times where I would come and just sit and cry that, I would be at a breaking point and I never wanted to quit, but how do I manage it all? And yeah. I kept coming back to, I, I want a partner or I want somebody who I can bounce ideas off of a sounding board. And while my father is always available and still, it's just different. Um, 
as you grow and you get bigger and the business is something it never was, um, I think sometimes the advice comes to a certain point where you have to grow. And I did business coaches for a while. I think they were helpful. Um, but, you know, those are also a very different thing versus somebody who has a vested interest in good and bad decisions, people in your company, like a partner. Yeah. So that ultimately is what led me to um, kind of the excitement of, okay, if I have a partner, what does it look like? And it, it was over several years. It was over a series of different um, conversations with different people, different companies. You know, what do I want? What fits with my value system? What's aligned? And that doesn't always work out for people. And I know that I feel very blessed that um, everything really came into alignment. Your cultures, you know, we talked earlier about cultures, your, your mm -hmm. cultures have to align, right? The value system. And those are all really tricky when you blend a few things. Um, but sometimes I believe it's not any more tricky than when you work with family members, right? <laughs> That's not always right. Right. sexy either. Some um, would argue that that might be more difficult. Right. I. Honestly, there are so many husband-wife combinations oh, in the dating world, and they have, God honest truth, my utmost respect, because to be able to work at the office all day long in a different environment that is from a very business kind of centric professional side, mm -hmm. and then come home and try to have to shut it off and not talk work in front of your kids, maybe, or where it consumes you and have a very defined space. Um, I think it's hard. It's super impressive to me. I personally yes. don't know if I could do it. I've thought about you know it. And I'm like, no way. That honestly, that was one of the big takeaways from the Women of Pain event were all the spouses that work together. I couldn't believe it. Um, but listen, thank you for sharing, man. You just dropped some serious, uh, I think, nuggets that we can all hold on to in 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 what you just talked about, especially the feeling of, you know, you got the world on your shoulders just wanting someone to partner with on decisions. Uh, man, I feel so much of what you just talked about. Um, before we wrap up, last but not least, I ask everybody this question. What do you do for Gina to take care of yourself, to make sure that you can show up every day, run this amazing company that you've built? What do you do to take care of yourself and fill all these roles and different hats that you're wearing in life? I commit to creating weekly space, whether it's a certain day or a couple hours to not have my phone near me, shut off. I'll either go for a walk if it's, you know, wintertime and cold. Um, I'll sometimes go to yoga, um, but I always do it where I'm alone. So I plan it ahead because um, I have two kids, dogs, husband. I realized outside of my commute to the office, when I'm usually listening to podcasts or taking phone calls, I'm never alone. Yeah. I have so many people coming at me at the office. I get home. There's so much coming at me. Um, growing up, going back to my roots, being an only child, um, I had a lot of alone time. And as I got older, mm -hmm. everybody expects you just to adapt. And I really value, I alone doesn't mean lonely. I love sitting with my own thoughts myself. It's where I have my most growth. And I realized when I was sacrificing that time, it was just, it was crushing my soul. And so for me, I create that space and it changes. It's not you know, well, I go to CrossFit all the time, right? It's just making sure that I have that hour of that day to myself. Um, and it's, it's structured, you know, and I plan it the week ahead. So sometimes it's a massage. I will leave um, early on a day and I will go for two hours before I have to be home and create that space, go get a massage and just zen out so I can come home. And it ultimately has made me a better spouse, a better mother, a better boss. Um, I can tell the times where I'm crunched and I can't always do that, which is few and far between. Um, I'm just 
I'm less patient. I'm agitated because I feel like that space was stolen from me. Um, and so I've realized the value of it. So that's what I create and I, I commit to it. Very good. Alone does not mean lonely. I think we'll end there. Gina, thank you for joining me today. And for our listeners, make sure you are following us on our Facebook page, uh, which is Women in Paint on Facebook. You'll find lots of great partnerships, networking in there, support. Uh, Gina, are you are you on the Women in Paint Facebook page? Are you a Facebook person? I'm not a Facebook person. I've been talked into potentially getting back on it. We are just on LinkedIn and Instagram at this point. Okay, good deal. Well, I'm sure folks can find you on LinkedIn, uh, Instagram, it sounds like, and then maybe we'll see you on the Facebook page as well. Uh, until next okay. time, this wraps up another Women in Paint episode. Stay tuned and we will see you here next time. Painted podcasts are produced by the Painting Contractors Association and are made possible by members and industry partners. To find out more about upcoming education opportunities or for more information about joining PCA, visit PCAPainted.org.